Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is Too Young to be a Widow, and our guests are Father Porig Green and Beverly McManus. At age 43, when her husband Steve died, Beverly McManus was left a single mom with a demanding career. She wondered how she could manage without the support of her husband and best friend. Beverly was to find help from Father Porig Green, pastor of the Catholic community of Pleasanton, California. For the past 20 years, Father Green has set up grief groups for people like Beverly, who have lost loved ones through death and divorce. The model of support is that of like-to-like, where people find others who have walked the grief journey and are there to provide a safe, life-giving environment. Welcome to the show, Father Porig Green and Beverly. Thank you. Thanks. It's so great to have you both on the show, and uh, I, I love the idea that we not only have a person who has had this loss, but we also have, um, we're going to be able to talk about the support community today. So it will be a great show. Let me start out this show by asking uh, Beverly a little bit about your husband's death, and uh, how long has it been? It's been five years. Last week was the five-year anniversary, uh-huh. and um, Steve died of esophageal cancer exactly six months after the diagnosis. And in some ways, even though it's been five years, it feels like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like I'm still coming to grips with the diagnosis, let alone the fact that he's gone and has been dead for five years. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I feel like when you lose a spouse, what people have told me is they're your, they're your life partner. And you expect, and I'm sure, Beverly, to grow old with Steve and well, always have him in your life. Yeah, we had lots of plans. We had, we had gotten married relatively young and had children right away, and had figured out that by the time we were 45, both of our girls would be launched and on their own, and we would be able to travel and do all the things that we've been putting off. And our plans changed dramatically when he died because it left me with the task of getting the girls through college and figuring out, what am I going to do now? I'm, You know, all of those plans that we had made were gone, and I had never thought of the fact of, Okay, I'm going to be 44 years old and alone. Very tough. And it's been now five years, and the girls are through in college and through one through college, right? Right. My oldest daughter graduated from NYU. My youngest is a senior in her last semester at Cal State Chico, and they've both been really diligent students and have worked really hard and I think part of that was to honor their dad's memory because he really felt it was important for them to get their college degrees. And they've worked hard to get them in four years, knowing that I, as a single mom, was supporting them. Uh, They had a lot of friends who were doing it in the six-year plan, and they realized, hey, that's not really fair to mom who's working to try to get us through school. Mm -hmm. Well, Father Porig, uh, when did you first meet Beverly? I think it was very shortly after her husband died, and she came to our grief workshop at our church, and I thought it was a bit soon, but I always feel it's better to be in a caring environment than maybe developing bad habits at home. Uh-huh. Uh, Beverly did great grief work and yeah. meant ha- ha- she felt yeah. the pain. 
How did you find out about uh, Father Porg's... Uh, I, we're just going to call you Porg, right? That's fine. That's great. <laughs> okay. How did you find out about Porg's uh, program, Beverly? Well, you know, Steve had been part of the hospice program, and they invited me to a grief workshop, and I attended one of them, but it just seemed so... Um, it was not faith-based, and it just seemed so clinical, and it was held at the hospital, and it just reminded me so much of all of the chemo visits that I'd been there with Steve, and I just found it really discouraging. Mm -hmm. Then I saw a note in the newspaper about this grief workshop that was being held. So I called, and they were completely filled up, but I begged them and said, (laughs) oh, please, if you have an opening at all, is there any way you can fit one more person in? And thankfully, Father Porg (laughs) said yes, and I was able to go. And I remember they asked us to make a commitment to attend all seven weeks. (laughs) And... um, at the first meeting, I remember thinking, I see why they made us make that commitment, because I really felt like bolting through the entire thing. Everyone was crying. Everyone was very weepy, and I thought, oh, these people don't have their act together. Mm-hmm. They don't, they're all so, they're all so messed up, unlike me, who's so together and just holding it all together. <laughs> so I, I initially wasn't planning on going back, but I'd made the commitment. So the next week I went back, and there was a speaker who was telling her grief story about the loss of her daughter who had been murdered. And then they played music. (laughs) You know, first the story got me. I was weeping. Then they played music that really got to me, and I started crying. Then they asked us to um, think about some reflection questions, and I was, like, totally messed up and crying (laughs) through that. Then we had small groups, and we had to tell our own grief story. And I couldn't get through that without crying. Then they played another song, and I cried. And I basically cried through all seven weeks. And so, so you made it through work. the seven weeks. And Father Pork, as I understand it, she then became uh, a peer-to-peer. Is that what you call That's it? That's right. Your... After, I forget, but she was a very good student <laughs> <laughs> of our very painful workshop. Mm-hmm. And then I call people who have yeah, really done good grief work and are icons for people coming in in deep pain. Oh, I like that word, icons. Yeah, and it is true because people come in totally hopeless. Uh And in some way, they need to see in flesh that there's life after death. There's life after the loss of loved ones. Uh And and, and I think that's sort of what we're doing on the radio show, too, is bringing that whole message of hope that things do go on. Yes. Yeah. Now, uh, I want to talk to you. There are a couple of issues that Beverly's come up with, with that um, resonate with me. One of them, for our folks out there who are fairly newly bereaved, is that it is difficult sometimes to go back to a hospital setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if, and, and some of those hospice or hospitals, some of those support systems will be in those settings. And, and I think that's really a good thing to bring up, Beverly, is that uh, sometimes uh, our folks out there, if you're discouraged because of the hospital setting or hospice, you might want to reach out to uh, the religious community or uh, other or compassionate friends. Yeah, or compassionate friends. Oh, they don't—they're not for spouses, though. Uh, no, they're not. That's right. It's the death of a child. Yeah, but I, I know, Mom. We've had a, a bunch of guests on the show in the past say, you know what, going to the hospital was was made things worse, not better. Yep, we have. There were too many reminders. 
Yeah, so I think that's an important thing. And the other thing I think Beverly brings up now is, uh, and Father Pork, I loved what he said about that it was a little early for her. There, there are three things that come up for me. One is that grief is so individual, and some people can go in there early, and some people can't, and family members sometimes are trying to force people in too early, and sometimes um, people would like to wait a little longer. And yet, yet we have other people on the show, don't we, Heidi, who are saying, I was ready. Yeah, and I couldn't get you know, and people didn't want me to do it, and so we've got all these push pulls in grief and loss, which is uh, which are absolutely fascinating. Name of our show: Too Young to Be a Widow, and I really thought about that because uh, my husband's partner died um, uh, in his late forties, and uh, his wife said that to me: uh, uh, the widow thing, you don't find other women, and it's very difficult. Did you find that, Beverly? Yes, I I actually. Um, was really relieved, I guess is the best word to say it. When I attended the grief workshop, there were a couple of other younger wives and actually some who were really young, in their 20s, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, some of their spouses had died totally unexpectedly in accidents, and they were, um, so I didn't feel so isolated being part of the workshop. Yeah, and I was I want to say something about that. You know, the widows that I work with are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. The younger widows hate the word widow. Mm. They feel like widow implies somebody that's an older person, and they really didn't identify with that word. So. Well, I really don't either, but I'm not single either. It's really hard. I know that in the first year after Steve died, I hated even doing the taxes where you had to check that box, spouses deceased. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what is your status? Are you married, single, divorced, widowed? Because I don't feel like I'm single at all. I don't feel married. I'm, but the idea of being widowed, I don't really connect with that title very much. Yeah. Father Pork, what have you found with that? Do you find people oh, yeah. don't like the title widow, or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, very much so. And I think it's to do with the shock treatment. It's also to do with many of the connotations of the word widow. But I think for some people, it, it, in, it, it connects them with their reality. I am a widow, which means my husband is dead. Uh-huh. And, and it's difficult to deal with that reality di- yeah, at and first, don't, right? I mean, I really think, and sometimes I use it deliberately in my presentations to get them going, to get the juices going, because it's a great way of initiating them into the pain. Uh-huh. Oh, talk about that, about our audience out there who, what about initiating them into the pain? That's an interesting thought. Well, you know, sometimes we suppress the pain right from the start. We tried to get busy, and uh, Beverly had two daughters, so she had to keep the show on the road. Right. And my uh, uh, my um, sharing with people is that you need help. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and that it sounds helps like you initially Beverly still. was in that place at her first group meeting. Pardon? It sounds like initially when Beverly went to her first meeting with you, she was in that place where she was kind of suppressing the pain. That's right. And saying, I can't relate to these people. I'm yeah. not here. Yeah. And then you come into this, and I believe a safe environment, a caring environment, where it's not just clinical. And I think there can be very good uh, grief uh, workshops in uh, in hospices and in hospitals, but it all depends on the vision and, and the leadership and the, the the quality of facilitating. But people need to feel comfortable, and they need to feel that they're normal from evening one. And that means that they can be themselves and that they won't be judged. I love so, that, because people do feel like they're going crazy, don't they? Oh, absolutely. They? And then you say... 
and it's all normal. I have one handout, and there's a little guy. Uh, there's about forty things listed on it, you know. And then there's a little guy, a little cartoon saying, "And it's all normal," mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. I like that. And then it, then they relax, and they also see people like Beverly and the team there for them. Mm-hmm. Not just that night, but we're on the phone during the week. And that's the beauty of a faith community environment, that we just don't leave them and say, you know, now see you next week. No, we're there next day. we we'll so, see you at worship on Sunday or whatever. Uh, so people can actually get in touch with you. Yes. During the week. And yeah. the, team, the team stay in touch with the four or five people that they have in their little support group. They contact them the following few days. Well, I can just sit here, our audience out there, wishing that they had some kind of a support like that in their community. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's a blessing because so often we think of church as just worship. Mm-hmm. But I believe the test of a good quality religious community is how we nurture and are present to our hurting families. And it sounds like, Father Porig, um, that everybody that went to this group was not necessarily part of the Catholic community. Absolutely. It's very ecumenical. But, mm-hmm. And we don't I mean it just happens. People come, find us. Uh, for example, in Beverly, if Beverly doesn't mind me saying so, I did, she was on team before I realized her faith background. It mm-hmm. didn't matter. Right. Uh-huh. Beverly is part of our community. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you, uh, Father Porg and Beverly, what do you think the biggest challenges for our widows out there are? And shall I call them widows or single, single, <laughs> once married women? It would be, yeah. Personally, I feel the first thing is to come out of isolation and find a good quality support group. Uh huh. Secondly, the that will empower to them to grieve. Beverly, what would you? What did you think your biggest challenge was? Well, for me, it was coming to grips with the fact that Steve wasn't coming back. And um, going to the uh, workshops really helped because Father Porg actually made us say, he's dead and he's not coming home. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of those things where even though in your, in your mind you know, yes, he's dead, but in your heart you wake up next to the empty pillow every day, you want to come home. For me it was hard when I traveled on business to fly back to the airport and know that Steve wasn't going to pick me up, it was really awful to commute to work in the morning, taking BART, standing on the platform, waiting for the train when every morning I'd stood there with Steve. Mm-hmm. And we'd always have really wonderful chats in the morning as we waited for the train, and we'd commute together every day. And to do that alone, the first time I did it, I had to turn around, get back in my car, and I drove to work because I couldn't stand the idea. And I also had the sense that people who had seen us together were now looking at me alone. You know, not that, it, not that people actually do that, but I just had this real self-conscious sense of, you know, I used to be part of a team, and now here I am, solitary. Uh-huh. And, and that idea for our audience is they might say to themselves, he is dead and he's not coming back, or she is dead and she's not coming back. Uh, you know trying to bring that into, into some kind of reality. But I think that's uh, why these support groups are wonderful, and you were talking about telling your story, because you really need to uh, be able to tell your story. There are some groups on the Internet that I noticed that you can connect up with, too, like Widow to Widow and, and different uh, things that you might go to the Internet to look for a, a support group. Well, you know, we've got an email here that's asking some pretty practical questions, and I wanted to run one by you, too. Um, there's a Mary from Iowa sent us an email, and she said it's been eight months since my husband died of lung cancer. I still have his clothes hanging in the closet. 
I just can't bring myself to clean out the closet. Seems like such a daunting task. Do you have any suggestions? Well, I would say that, um, as you said earlier, Gloria, each grief has its own timeline. And um, one of the things that I learned is that you'll know that you're able to do it when you're able to do it. It's like, how do I know when I've cried long enough? When you stop crying. Mm, and I you like know that. you've cried long enough. How do I know it's time to clean out his stuff? When you can clean out his stuff. You know, some people have to do it right away. Sometimes people have to sell the house and move. Sometimes people need to do it just because they're that way and, and to see all that stuff there not being used to them seems like a criminal waste of space and they need to get it done right away. Yeah. Um, for me, it took a long time to deal with Steve's stuff. Um, I felt almost like I wasn't honoring his presence here. I was trying to sweep it clean uh, by moving his stuff out. And so I did it in stages. That really helped. One week I did all of his socks. The next week I did all <laughs> of his shirts. And it really helped to do it that way rather than thinking, I have to, in one sweep, remove every piece of evidence that I've had a man living here at my side for 21 years. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I think, and Father Pork, uh, don't families kind of put pressure on people sometimes? I mean, kids will come into town and say, oh, let me help you with that stuff. Yeah, you know? it happened to my own family, Gloria. When my dad died in 79, I, at that stage, was not involved in family counseling or family ministry. So I remember we were so matter-of-fact, because as a family, we didn't connect with our emotions easily. I think it's the part of the Irish personality. And so we were very clinical, and we cleared out everything within about two weeks. When my mom died exactly uh, four, four years ago today, uh, it was so different. We had, we had learned how to be present to each other in pain, in joy, and in sorrow. And so there was a different process in doing it. But I think that a lot of people, and that's where we're back to the support group, we, we can't expect too much from families because they don't want to see us hurt, and they do want to fix us. So that's why it's so important to have that caring, life-giving environment where people walk the road with us. Uh -huh. So sometimes I have uh, some of our ministers go and start that process with uh, a person who's lost her spouse and take down the clothes and let's say, where did this, what is this a memory of? And wouldn't you want someone to wear this for Christmas <laughs> in her, you know? But it's, it's, it's not to hijack because it's a very sacred moment. It's, it's a book of memories, the cupboard. Right. Oh, that's classes, a lovely way to put the, the items and the clothes and things, yeah. the memories and dealing with them that way. Yeah. Well, Mary, I, th I think that uh, we're getting some ideas of how you could clean out that closet if you decide to. And obviously it's clear maybe uh, you'll, you'll do it when you want to. And I love your ideas, that Beverly, about the socks and the shirts, don't you, Heidi? Yes. Yes, and doing it in stages. And I think Beverly made such a good point. It's almost like you're wiping that person out of your life by getting rid of the things, and it's you have to just make peace with the fact that those memories we have can never be wiped away, right. but it's hard at first to get rid of things that belong to someone we care about. Yes. Absolutely. It's like letting go gradually of the loved one as he or she was in order to begin taking him back mm. as he is uh, and placing like him that. in the heart. Very nice. And, De and Beverly has done that so powerfully, and that's why she's such a profound icon in our ministry in, 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 in being such a hope to others coming in who, 
who are so hopeless and helpless. Yeah, I remember uh, having a woman say to me, uh, the worst thing in the world that can ever happen to you is to have your husband die. And uh, it's just so painful. I could just see it. Her whole life had been shattered as she knew it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, sometimes it's not just in terms of because of the depth of the attachment. Sometimes there's added pain when it has been a conflictual relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And unfinished business. So that brings in a whole, you want to say, some complicated issues that impact the grief journey as well, you know. I was just thinking about our title, Too, too Young to Be a Widow. Any age is too young, isn't it? Yes. Yes, I love that. Absolutely. It, yeah, it's not fun to be the one left no. mm-hmm. to deal with all the issues. And there are a lot of issues to deal with, aren't there? Taxes, you know, what else, Beverly? All the paperwork, you know. Also, assuming all the roles that Steve had done almost seamlessly and and transparently that we just took for granted all of a sudden became my job. I was going to say, he probably didn't know how much he did until he was gone. Well, you know, I feel so... That's one of the things that I feel bad about is I don't think I really told him how much I appreciated him Mm. because I think in a way we just took him for granted. Mm -hmm. He always handled all the paperwork. He handled all the car maintenance, all the home maintenance, and, you know, all these weird leaky faucets and, you know, changing the wiring and something. Or, you know, he knew where all the warranties were. And after he was gone, that became my job. And that brought up a lot of feelings that sometimes were unexpected. I remember getting really angry when I had to deal with the um, car maintenance. I was so mad because it was like, Hey, man, this is not my job. This is Steve's job. Mm-hmm. I don't like to have to take the car out to the service bay and then feel like they are taking advantage of me because I'm a woman. Even though they weren't, I always had that feeling, though. Of, I can imagine you can have a bit of a job. chip on your shoulder about a lot of things to well, begin and, with. And I remember one day we were taking my daughter's car out, and I was following her um, in my car to pick her up so we could shop while they were servicing her car, and... On, this was like a year after Steve died, and on the on the way out there, we're zipping down the freeway, and um, she watched as a highway patrol pulled me over. Well, on the way there, I just started thinking about this is this should be Steve doing this, and I totally broke down and just started sobbing. It felt like he had just died. I felt the loss so um, it was so strong and immediate, and it was like. Steve's gone, and he's not taking care of this car. Now I have to do it. And I was just sobbing and not really paying attention as I drove and speeding and tailgating. And so this highway patrolman pulled me over, and I sat there in my my car just crying. And I couldn't even pull it together to give him my license. And I said, hold on just a second. And so he just stood there very patiently, waited, and... And he said, what's the matter? You seem really upset. And I said, oh, my husband died. And he said, well, when did he die? And I said, a year ago. And he kind of looked at me and I said, and I told him what had happened. And he said, look, one of the worst things of my job is having to go knock on the door and let people know that they've lost someone in a car accident. And I don't want to have to knock on the the door for your daughters and tell them Mm. that your mom died in a car accident because she'd lost it on the road thinking about your dad mm-hmm. you need to take care of things and if you feel that way in the future pull over cry as much as you need to pull yourself together and then continue driving 
So he gave me the ticket anyway. <laughs> oh, he <laughs> did? Yeah, he did. He said, he said, you know, I would love to not give this to you, but I really feel like you need a wake-up call. <laughs> and you need to... And I was really thankful afterwards. At the time, I was upset and still very weepy. But, you know, I realized it really was a wake-up call of, I need to do my grief work. Yep, the I other thing he did is he taught, he treated you normally. Yes, and he... Um, he treated you like any other speeding driver. Yes. I think we have such a desire to be treated normally. Uh, don't you, Father Porig? Yeah, and yet it can be a cover-up at times because we're not normal. Right. You know, I think that's maybe what society... Um, evokes in us get back to normal you know we have sanitized death so much right you know i remember going to work and, and being overly confident yeah. ridiculous yeah. you know and we have to do it i mean beverly had two daughters and that's why i say the first night when people come i say some you know hands up those who feel guilty in being here Mm-hmm. Well, because they've left their children at home. Right. And my thing They're is taking care of the, themselves. The greatest well, gift, exactly. you know, I have a phrase that I think is important. If you don't transform your grief, you will transmit it. If you don't transform your pain, you will transmit it. Uh, very good. You know, and so that's what they're there for. They're, they're much more effective moms and dads. Right. And also good role models for empowering their kids to get in touch with their own emotions, which equally are as painful. Well, and Father Porg, I think what both you and the police officer were essentially saying is you have to take care of yourself. Absolutely, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that it's okay and there should be no guilt. Right. And I think when you're trying, as I was, to maintain my job, do it really well, be very competent, they knew about, about Steve and they were very supportive at my work. But I also, having taken so much time off when he was sick and then after the death, I felt like I had to compensate mm-hmm. by being, as you said, Gloria, overly competent yeah. and by working really hard and holding it all together. And it was great to have a place where I could fall apart yeah. at the workshop, where I could totally let down my guard. I didn't have to be a parent there. I could just be myself. I could be a woman mourning the loss of her husband. And so you could compartmentalize uh, it. Uh, Father Apora, could you talk a little bit about complicated grief? Yeah. I don't like the word, but it's better than some of the words, like they use dysfunctional grief and all of that, you know. For me, complicated grief, I think, let me just say, first of all, I think any grief can be complicated, depending on the level of the attachment that the person has or the person who has died. But where there's a sudden death, tomorrow I'm burying a man who just died in his office last week, 43. Oh. Uh, the wife was at home, and he wasn't coming home, went to the office and found him dead. Wow. Mm-hmm. I would see the, the shock of that mm-hmm. uh, being the beginning of a complicated grief. Suicide. Mm-hmm. The loss of a child. The loss after a long, lengthy illness. Homicide. I mean, we have two of the people in our group where their kids were murdered. Uh-huh. So those kind of things. But they're complicated in, 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 in the kind of loss or the, the mode of the death. But any loss can be complicated. And what, what makes it less complicated is that they face their own grief mm. with others. And then it doesn't become complicated in the sense of complicated symptoms. 
So we get them to look at the norma- normalcy of what they're going through. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. And, and find other people. Like, it's so important on our grief teams to have people who have lost children through death, through murder, through suicide, through, you know, all the different modes of, so that people can immediately come into the group and say, I know somebody like me. What about dating and what about wanting to remarry and all that kind of thing? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Beverly? And Well, you know, for me, it was, it really uh, connected when Heidi said that for some of the widows she's worked with, it's about five years before you start feeling like, hey, this is who I am now, and I can see that. It's taken me about this long to really be ready to even entertain the thought of someone else. Mm-hmm. For so long, Steve was my sweetheart, my best friend, my husband, and so the idea of someone else coming in that role, it just didn't really, it wasn't really a part of how I was thinking. But I know that for other widows and widowers, you know, they're ready to move on a lot sooner. And I think for um, for some people, though, I think it, it's really important to really take the time to figure out who am I when I'm not in the role of, of being Steve's wife. Who am I as an individual? Who am I as a woman in her 40s? Who am I as a woman who has a career, or a woman who has two daughters, or a woman who likes to garden and enjoys going to the movies, just as myself, without being part of a partnership? That's It's taken me about that long to figure out who am I and what do I like. And, and Beverly, you know, you're, you're bringing up such a good point, because with the women that I work with that married young like you did, they felt like they kind of went from their parents' wing to their husband's wing and they never really had that time as a single person to say who am i as just an individual that's exactly it and that can be a scary and hard thing father porg what's your take on uh, the remarriage and and dating i work a lot with the divorced as well and uh, it's an interesting statistic that uh, over 70 percent of second marriages break down Mm -hmm. and i think it's because the person hasn't healed from the fracture Mm -hmm. or the break and I think it's the same thing with those uh, who lose their spouses, that they, they have become broken or fractured, and they need to put themselves together again as whole people. Mm-hmm. And so becoming whole, then you are more in touch with your own needs. But loneliness is not a good reason to get married. In fact, it puts a huge responsibility on somebody else. That, that makes a good point, that loneliness is not a good reason to get married. And that 70% statistic is, is quite a daunting, it's scary, a daunting you know? statistic about the... But it isn't, I mean, I'm just saying that's with divorce, second marriages after yeah, divorce. second marriages, And it's because yeah, people yeah, that's bring all this baggage with them and haven't become, you know, have, aren't able to answer the question, who am I now? And, and what about dating? We're talking about um, marriage. What about these online dating services that Kate asked us about? What, do you have any thoughts on that? I noticed that there was a Catholic online dating service on the Internet. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I, I really feel and I, 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 that it's, it's from a deep loneliness and a loss of local connection. Mm-hmm. And I think that my greatest desire for people is to find a local group where they really can cultivate good, strong friendships and can socialize and move towards a dating experience. It's hard to get out there again. We, we've got another email from a, a person. Uh, well, let me say, Kate, 
thank you very much for your email. And as far as online dating services, I think what we're hearing here is um, it's been two years for you, and make sure that you're connected with your community before you start reaching out out um, to those kinds of things. I, th- I think uh, your self-development, we consider that very important for you. Kind of like now's your time, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel that the purpose of finding the group is not just to do grief work, but to live that new sense of being in a context. And so it's not just coming weeping to the group week after week. It's also doing things socially. And also reaching out, helping like Beverly has. And when you start helping other people, we know that does a lot. Well, we've got another email that says, um, this is from uh, Wendy from Chandler, Texas, and she says, Our friends have been very kind to me since my husband died. They often invite me to go to dinner with them and play cards. I really feel strange going out with couples. I like feel like the third wheel. <clears throat> Will I ever feel comfortable again without my best friend and partner? Uh, that's an interesting. Uh, is that tough for you, Beverly, going out uh, with couples? Well, it it really depends on the couples. Um, it's weird. After Steve died, there were a lot of our friends who I didn't really ever hear from again, and I think for them it felt awkward to have a single person with them, and maybe it made them feel uh, it reminded them of Steve and how much they missed him or something. But it almost felt like I was abandoned. Other people really reached out and included me, and for me, it didn't feel as awkward as I just missed Steve because I'd always associated with those friends as part of a couple, and so to do it alone, I had to figure out a new way to do it, and um, that takes a little bit of time and courage. Uh, I like um, that. It, encourage. It really Father Ford, do you do you encourage people to go out with uh, people who invite them? Do you see people holding back? Yeah, I think it's better to invite people and be inclusive and let people know, hey, you know, your husband or wife isn't here anymore, but you're our friend and you'll always be our friend. And we want to, you know, continue that relationship so that they don't feel like they're just ostracized now because they have a new role. Right. I want to ask Father Pork what his take is on that. Have you seen that? Yes. One of the things that comes up a lot, actually, is that uh, widows and widowers don't feel comfortable uh, with um, with their their couple friends of the past, and are made very feel whether they're, this, the couples are more vulnerable with this person without a spouse now. But we hear it so much about people being left behind, mm-hmm. and that's extremely painful. Well, I wanted to say to uh, Wendy that I think she's lucky that people are inviting her. I would consider it kind of lucky if she wants to go, if she enjoys them. I think it's more that if she feels uncomfortable, they feel it. I mean, you've just got to kind of kick it up and try to be be cherry or whatever with certain friends. And there's certain friends that you can let down with in groups. But, um, you know, I I think it it all depends how you're doing your grief work. If you have the evolving strength then you can know you can go with these people and not be embarrassed, not be self conscious knowing that I have a place where I'm doing my work. Yeah, and, and I'm you not don't have to do it with that group. From this yeah. group. I think that's that compartmentalizing. Yes. Well, before we close the show, I want to thank you both for being on so much, uh, Beverly and Father Pork Green. Could you talk, uh, could you, I would like to, before we close the show, have you um, kind of give your best piece of advice to those widows out there. Do you have uh, anything special you'd like to say, Beverly? Well, you know, I came across a quote uh, shortly after Steve died, and it's really helped me. It says, laughter is the brush that sweeps away the cobwebs of your heart. Uh. And 
It reminds me that it's important to continue making new memories. It's important to keep my sense of humor and to laugh. And I go out of my way to find things, funny movies, or be with friends who make me laugh, because it really does help us heal to uh, keep on living, keep doing new things so that it isn't our life stopped with the death of our spouse, but that part of our life is not going any further but our life didn't stop. We keep on living and we have to keep doing things that are fun and that, and especially if we do have children so that they feel like their lives keep going on and that they still are meaningful and it's not that everything that happened after their dad died no longer has any meaning or memory. Okay. Right. And how about you, Father Pork? Do you have any I think special? if I could say one thing that to me is key is to find a quality environment to grieve the loss and to honor the attachment that you had with the person who has died. And you don't go back to a restaurant that doesn't give you good food, so you don't go back to a group that you feel that's unsafe. But I believe that a good, caring, loving, uh, professionally facilitated group uh, is the the womb to be birthed. So, so reach out and find a group that you're comfortable with. That's right. However, and to unlock the door. Uh, as Beverly said, tr- uh, try to stay in it for a few weeks, right? Or oh, give it longer. A commitment, give it a, a little time. The greater the love, the longer it takes. So when people come in, they say, how long am I going to be here? And I say, as long as you need. Uh-huh. And you'll feel it in your belly yourself. Uh-huh. It's time to move on. But usually we, we invite them to be part of the team. As Kubler-Ross put her sixth stage, you know, reaching out. Uh-huh. They need uh-huh. to give back. Uh, that's very nice. I think I think we do know we're healing when we reach out to give back, for sure. And we want to um, give uh, comfort to all of you out there who we know are suffering these losses. And uh, it's time for us to close our show now. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.